3, I mentioned last week that it was a daunting task to try to do in two weeks a whole chapter, of particularly this one. So I won't cover the, the entire chapter, but we'll, we'll, we'll preach through at least verse 16 this morning. Turn there now with me and let's, let's read this entire section here and, and let it kind of soak into our soul. Then we'll pray and then we'll get started. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and eyes this morning. Teach us through your holy word. Pray that we'd be faithful to the proclamation of your holy word. We know and believe it will do its work this morning. May it encourage us and convict us, strengthen us and empower us to press on as we walk day by day in the power of the risen Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, let me give just a brief summary of what we covered last week. If you missed our time together last week, we we covered verses 1 through 7. 
And again, just a quick recap for the appropriate context here. I believe that I said this very line as a summary last week. I said, if anyone claims that an outward act or any action of man, however it is tied to the historic truths of covenants and the promises of God, if anyone can claim that that outward act or action of man can earn the favor of God, then we ought to respond in the manner that Paul himself responded in Galatians or here in this passage in Philippians. Paul gave three descriptors of these false believers. He called them dogs, for they were outside the covenant community. He called them evildoers, because they were working evil, though they thought they were working righteousness. And he called them the mutilation, in that their outward works, their outward circumcision yielded nothing eternal. But in contrast, he gave three descriptions or descriptors of true believers, those circumcised inwardly, not only outwardly, those truly born again. He says that they worship by the Spirit of God. He says they glory in Christ Jesus. And he says they put no confidence in the flesh. Now, now isn't that simply amazing? I might have tried to describe the true believer in a different way, but Paul says they worship by the Spirit of God. They glory in Christ Jesus and they put no confidence in the flesh. This is Paul's description of the true circumcision. Those that have truly had a heart change. Those truly born again. And we can ask of ourselves, do I worship in spirit and in truth? Do I give glory to Jesus Christ? Do I put confidence in my own accomplishments? If there was ever any reason to put confidence or trust in the flesh, it was Paul. And Paul gives us a list here, a picture of his former life. He provides a list of everything that counted for him at that time when he was Saul as righteousness. He puts them in his, in his prophet column. And he does so in two categories. Those that are of his bloodline or his pedigree and those that he accomplished on his own in his own effort. He says this, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he was a true child of, of Abraham by birth. He had faithful and devout parents. He was a true Israelite, not an Ishmaelite, not an Edomite, but a descendant of Jacob. He said that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of two that stayed loyal and faithful when the kingdom divided. And he said he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He didn't just have this pedigree. He lived it out culturally and in his language. He had a rich heritage and he lived it. But he was more than a Hebrew by culture and language. He was a Pharisee by training and doctrine. But more than a Pharisee, he was absolutely zealous in his hatred for Christ. And then Paul concludes his spiritual biography by claiming that he was blameless. He meticulously kept the law and he was meticulously self-righteous. That was his claim. But then, in our summary last week, we, we appropriately we stopped at verse 7 because this is where he reframes. 
And he gives a profound truth in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that I placed in this column is a loss for the sake of Christ. And so it is not by the position our parents put us in or the position we put ourselves in. It is only by the position that God puts us in. Or as Paul says in Ephesians, by grace you are saved. And this is the great refrain of Holy Scripture. It is by grace you are saved. This morning, verses 8 and following, we're exploring two themes. Christ's righteousness imputed to believers. And then knowing Christ more and more intimately by pressing on toward the goal in order to win the prize. And so those two themes really are justification and sanctification. Big topics. In this section, and particularly verse 9, Paul takes his readers to the hinge. The hinge upon which all else turns, or so the reformers described justification. Paul is saying that he places his confidence in righteousness. Now think deeply on this for a moment. He places his confidence in righteousness. As Saul, he placed his, right, his confidence in his own self-righteousness. But after the road to Damascus, he, he placed his confidence in an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. So here, in, in verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying it's not having a righteousness of my own. He is saying it is having a righteousness that is not my own. Here Paul gives us two options, and only two. But but, but let me get to the main and plain thing that Paul is saying. So take, take it up just a level. Paul is saying that it is a relationship with God. Well, let me, let me put it this way. To have a relationship with God, righteousness is required. We know that no sin can come into the presence of a holy God. And we know that it can't be Paul's own self-righteousness because he says, word for word, he says, not having a righteousness of my own. So that option is out. But if it's not his own, and by extension, if it's not our own, whose is it? And the answer, of course, we know is Christ's righteousness. But where does it come from? How did Paul acquire this righteousness? How did Paul acquire Christ's righteousness? And so let's answer this question together by taking a a brief tour of the gospel. And so a quick answer to the the question, what is the gospel? Might might be like this. The gospel is the 
the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. That might be one simple way in one simple sentence to explain what the gospel is. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Isn't there more to the story? Why did he need to die? Might be a question. So let's dig a little deeper through this gospel story. And it is a story. And here it is. Man was perfectly created without sin and made in the image of God, the likeness of God. But sin entered because of a rebellion. Man rebelled against God. And this fall, as it's called, was total and complete. Physical death and spiritual death was the result. And so now humanity is corrupt and incapable of having a relationship with God in the same way that our first parents had in the garden. And so God, or as Scripture often says, but God, by His grace, through covenant arrangements, reestablished a plan and a lifeline and a way for hell-bound sinners like us to be reconciled to a holy God. Reconciled to Himself. And so, in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son to live and to die and then to resurrect in a glorified body. There is the Gospel. But let's get to the facts of the Gospel. Here are the facts of the redemptive story. And this is directly related to this idea of righteousness. Firstly, our own righteousness is in fact not righteous. We hear that in the Gospel story. We read that in Scripture. We see in Philippians 3 here that this term rubbish, what he counted as prophet, is now rubbish. And rubbish is the word that is also translated dung. We have filthy rags rubbed in dung. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Secondly, God requires a perfect righteousness. Matthew 5.48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But, but we, number three, are at enmity with God and no one can ever be righteous. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Number four, but God had a plan, didn't he, for fallen humanity. First John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And six, the son accomplished redemption on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And then lastly, number seven, the Son applied redemption in time by effectively or effectually calling the elect and giving them new birth. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul explains this gospel-centric, redemptive story in greater detail in really the book of Romans. 
his magnum opus. Now I want to read a passage that hits at the gospel very clearly. I'm going to read it through the first time, and then I want to read it verse by verse quickly with just a quick commentary. Again, I want you to listen for justification and righteousness. And whose righteousness he's speaking of. So turn to Romans chapter 3. Now, there are two beautiful sounds in a worship service. The first is the sound of babies, crying babies. That's a beautiful sound, a sound that many in the evangelical church don't like to hear in the worship service. But it's one we should, for it, it points to life. God has given life to a church. We welcome them in the worship service. The second beautiful sound in worship is the turning of the pages of Scripture. So that, that points to life abundantly, doesn't it? Crying babies and turning pages. Romans 3, verse 20 through 26. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and thus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be, the, he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Justified means declared righteous. It's a judicial declaration. The, the gavel has hit and you are declared righteous. And so no human being has the necessary righteousness, both in quality and quantity, to be justified. In verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So here we see that God's righteousness is utterly distinct, completely distinct from man's self-righteousness. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here we see that faith is not the grounds of justification, but it is the instrument of justification. In 23 and 24, Paul says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So this righteousness is not our own. It is by grace and it is a free gift. This alien righteousness, this, this foreign righteousness. It's not our own. And it comes to us by a free gift. And then in 24 and 25, through the redemption that is in 
Christ Jesus, and thus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Here we need to know this is no cheap grace. This is no easy getting righteousness. It's free and it's grace. But it took the Son of God on the cross. For Christ on the cross satisfied or He propitiated the wrath of God. That eternal punishment for us, Christ bore on the cross. And then at 25 and 26, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that He might both be just or righteous and the justifier. The one who declares someone righteous. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here we learn that God's plan of redemption has always been the same. That every man only has one way. Salvation has only come one way for all time. There was no separate way, no different way for Israel than than it is in the New Testament church. It's always been the same because of His justice and His holiness and His divine patience and His providence. He withheld judgment. The Old Testament saints look forward to the cross. And so He is just and the only one who can justify. This is what this passage teaches us. So now, I know we're going to great lengths to give the details of the facts of the Gospel story. I do so to point to the fact that the Bible teaches us that righteousness is necessary. You must be righteous if you want to enter into the presence of the Holy holy and living God. God justifies a sinner on the basis of righteousness. And Paul concludes, as I, as I hinted at earlier, that there are only two options. Self-righteousness is of, of the type he described in verses 1 through 6. Or Christ's righteousness, as we see in verse 9. Self-righteousness is costly and ongoing and is ultimately meaningless and valueless, however it may appear to others. Christ's righteousness imputed to the sinner, not infused, imputed to the sinner, results in justification and is free and is final. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have free and final justification. Justification, being declared right, is always free. And it's always final. And it's always followed by sanctification. Verse 9 is justification, but verse 10 and following is sanctification, which we'll define in a minute. Now, these two doctrines are intimately bound together. No man is justified by free grace, finally and completely, and then fails to be sanctified. Sanctification always follows. They're bound together, but they're necessarily distinct. 
Now, in my estimation, considering all of Paul's epistles, I think Paul gives his most passionate, his most heartfelt comment here in verse 10. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He says that I may know him. Paul, Paul already knows Christ. How is it that he can say that I want to know him? He knows he knows about Christ. But he wants more and more intimacy. Deeper fellowship. More proximity. More familiarity. He's not saying I want to know more about him. He's saying I want to know him. In the most personal and intimate way. Like a husband and a wife over 20 or 30 or 50 years of marriage is much more intimate and proximate and and familiar and close than someone just married five years. Is that your desire? Do you want to know Him more in this way? Not simply head knowledge or theological precision, but a heart-wrenching, intimate fellowship with the living God we just read about in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There are many ways and many seasons of our life to know Christ more intimately. And let me just encourage you to do one thing. And that's to study the attributes of God. And you will get some head knowledge. That's going to transform you. And it's going to bring you into a proximity and give you a knowledge of God maybe like you've never experienced. Think of and, and study His goodness and truth and holiness and power and love and wrath and justice. Study and meditate on these. Examining the character of God will really open the door to an intimate, close, proximate relationship to the glories and majesty of that holy triune God. Paul goes on to say that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. Now in verse 10 and 11, he he mentions resurrection two times. And of course, he emphasizes this throughout his epistles. The importance of it. The proof of it. But it is resurrection power that he wants to experience more of. Now, in my first draft of my notes, I was going to say something about how Presbyterians don't normally preach about that resurrection power. But I took it out. But I, but I just added it in. He wants to experience. You know, experience is okay. Experiencing the power of the resurrection is exactly what he wants. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us today. You know, the hymn writer was right when, when he pinned the chorus. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. 
There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. That resurrection power ultimately is to glorify God, isn't it? We don't seek power. We don't seek experience for the sake of it. Though God may give resurrection power, in fact, He has. He, He does so so that we can glorify Him. But in the context of the passage here, Paul's talking about resurrection power that can endure suffering. Even to the point of death. Paul says that he wants to share in Christ's suffering. There is no person who has ever lived that has not suffered or that is immune from suffering. Christians suffer like everyone else because we live in a fallen world. We don't suffer like the world. We suffer in a unique way. First of all, we never suffer alone. We have our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what I mean is that we suffer with Christ. Our our most intimate moments with Christ often are during our struggles and our suffering. Because it's then that we truly fall on our knees like the elders in the throne room. It is then that we recognize in a deeper way that the great shepherd is walking with us in the valley. We are never without Christ and without hope in our suffering. But not only do we not suffer alone, we suffer because of our obedience to Christ. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder there if that's about Christ's righteousness. Not our righteousness. Or in Acts 5, remember when the apostles were arrested? They were brought before the the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. They were beaten. And then in verse 41, it says this. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Or in chapter 1 of this epistle, Paul says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now look at the two things that he's combining there. It's been granted for you to believe. But it's also been granted for you to suffer We don't put those two things together, do we? And so I want to challenge you, good Calvinists, those that believe that the Lord granted you to believe. If you believe that, and we do, we must also believe that He granted for us to suffer for His sake. We should elevate the value of suffering as Christians the way that we elevate the value of the doctrine of election. Maybe we, we need in our systematic theologies, a section called the Doctrine of Suffering. We will suffer, but we will suffer while intimately fellowshipping with our Lord. And we will suffer, but we will suffer with the power of the resurrection in our hearts. Now let's transition to verse 12 through 16. And I want to read this again. This is a 
they say in theology, a pericope, a section of Scripture that's tightly woven together and belongs together. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has, has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he says, not that I have already obtained. Obtained what? Not that I have already obtained. He's not speaking of Philippians 3.9. He's not speaking of justification. Oh, he's, he's obtained that. He's definitely obtained justification because we know it's free and it's final. And it's from imputed righteousness. Paul is speaking of verse 10. He's speaking of his sanctification. He is saying, not that I have obtained all of Christ's power. Not that I have obtained perfect fellowship with Christ. Not that I have killed off all my sin. I have not been perfected. We see that in Romans 7. Now, now, positionally, yes, Paul and all believers have been justified by grace through the instrument of faith. Positionally righteous. But practically, we are all still men and women in process progressing like Paul in his sanctification. So Paul here is saying that he hasn't fully taken a hold of Christ in terms of his practice, in terms of Christian living. We also know that Paul's not Wesleyan. We're not going to be perfect in this lifetime. There's no perfect holiness for us until we're glorified. Sinlessness is not possible or achievable in this life. Paul has the peace of God, chapter 4, verse 7, because of the justification he has and that he wrote in 3.9. But on account of this justification, he presses on in his Christian walk. Or, as we read also, because he died for us, we live for him. Why do we walk? Why do we press on? Why do we suffer on the account of our justification? Because of his perfect standing and position in Christ, Paul presses on. Please his daddy. To make his daddy proud. That's why he presses on. We want to know him more intimately. We want to experience more of his power. And so we press on to spiritual maturity and discipleship. But let's remember, we only press on because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Christ Jesus has taken a hold of us, effectually called us, and regenerated us. Then we respond in repentance and faith, and the Father declares us righteous. That righteousness that's required has been put in our account, has been credited to us. 
Now, sanctification is being transformed into the likeness or the image of Christ. And that sanctification is really twofold. has two aspects. The first is negative and the, and the second is positive. It's negative and that it's the killing off of sins or mortification. We kill the sins off in our life. We work toward that, towards that through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's also positive in that we are we're to develop virtues, which is referred to as vivification. So we have mortification and vivification. We put on and we put off, don't we? We want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Listen to the Confession of Faith, section 13, which really gets to the heart of this passage. The Westminster Divines say, Those who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified truly and personally through the power of Christ's death and resurrection by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Its various lusts are more and more weakened and put to death. And those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces, leading to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Man, did they, did they read Philippians chapter 3? That is precisely what Paul is saying. And so we too press on to kill the remaining sin and to develop Christian virtues. Both. But listen to Paul in verse 13. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. One thing I do. One thing is absolutely clear here. Paul is not apathetic. He's not complacent. He's not smug. He's not satisfied in his Christian walk. He's satisfied in his in, in the righteousness imputed to him. He's satisfied that Christ paid it all. Yes, he's satisfied in that as we ought to be. But he's not satisfied with his walk. He is single-minded. He says, one thing I do. One thing I do. We are not just to forget what is behind us. That's the one thing. That, that, that we do. We forget that, that which is behind us. Both, both our suffering and failures and struggles, but also our accomplishments in Christ. In Christ. We forget those too. That evangelistic work you did, that support of that family, that encouragement you gave. We're pressing forward. The Greek word here for, for probably if you have an ESV, straining forward, really means stretching out, reaching forward. It's not a reclining sanctification. It's not a reclining faith. We should rejoice in what God has done in and through us. All for His glory. But we must keep stretching forward and reaching out in our sanctification. Straining, Paul says. We strive and press and walk in faith. Ever moving towards these two terms. Toward our goal and the prize. 
straining forward to the goal and the prize. So verse 14 here, the goal. What is the goal? What is Paul talking of here? Well, he's talking about Christ's likeness. Be conformed to the image of Christ. This is Paul's final goal. His purpose in sanctification and growth is Christ-likeness. To be more like Christ. And church, this is your purpose. To be like our Savior. To put on virtues and to put off vices. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why we are still here on this planet flying around the sun to be more like Christ. Paul's passionate plea is to know Him. So he presses on in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. But not only is there a goal, there's a prize. The prize is our final place in heaven. It's our glorification. It's the upward call of eternity to be around the throne like the elders. It's eternity with our God. So let's come to our conclusion with this. In verse 17 and 18, which we have not read, but you notice that there's the term or the word walk probably in your translation. In both 17 and 18. There is a way to walk that is fraught with trial and temptation and suffering and accountability. And there's another way to walk, which looks kind of like a yellow brick road, free of struggle, pleasure, and freedom. Free of pleasure, but with the perception of pleasure and freedom. The former walk to be Christ-like. And there'll be struggle and trials, difficulties. And the latter walk as enemies of the gospel, enemies of the cross of Christ. The former walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, chapter 127. The latter walk in a way that is licentious, self-centered, flesh-pleasing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Let us press on in our sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Press on in sanctification because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. A righteousness that's not our own. A foreign righteousness. An alien righteousness. It is in this righteousness that we stand and are justified. We have joy. The joy of Christ's righteousness. May the God of grace be glorified through the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we...